Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, a horror video game podcast and proud member of Bloody Disgusting's Bloody FM podcast network. I'm your host, Jay Krieger. And I'm the one swallowing my drink. Um, I knew both. <laughs> and this week we've got games and movies on the brain. Uh, more specifically, games adapted from horror films. Way back in Safe Room's history, Neil and I discussed the reverse, that being film adaptations of games. So fret not, as we're sure to dig into a few hidden gems along the way with uh, some beloved horror staples in there as well. Um, but it isn't just Neil and I this week, as we're joined by Dread XP's writer, Ian Marvin. So without further ado, Ian, welcome to the show. Hey guys, glad to be here. More than excited to crack open the tome on this fun topic, because, uh, you know, video games based on horror movies are on the rise, and there's more and more coming out each day, but I don't think yeah. people realize that this has been happening for a long time. As long as it's been games, it's been horror movie games. So I'm excited to talk about what yeah. was done right, what was done wrong, and maybe some stuff that could be done right in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's rare that we have people pitch us topics, so we're definitely uh, as enthusiastic to dive into this as you are. Um, so I guess, you know, generally speaking, what is your opinion of, you know, games that are adapted from film? I think we all know, uh, you know, there have definitely been some examples of the reverse that haven't uh, always been that uh, well-received. But for you, like, what's your opinion just in general on those? So I think it's a tricky one because the heart's got to be in the right place. You look at an adaptation like The Warriors by Rockstar, and it's something that absolutely elevates the source material. But unfortunately, through the the history of media, whenever it comes to adaptations, it has always been attached to um pro- like a promotional campaign of some court, some kind, which will inevitably shorten the development time, shorten the scope of the game. So it really is a mixed bag. But, you know, thankfully, over the years, some companies have managed to get their hands on a horror movie IP and just hit it out of the park. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, not always the case. You know, I think anybody who's played the SNES or NES or quite a lot probably has a couple in mind that didn't age too well. Well, that was funny. You know, I was racking my brain for some of my earliest uh, introductions to games that were based off of horror films. And it seemed like back in that era that you just mentioned, there was a real similar kind of blueprint or framework for them, right? A lot of them was kind of like, oh, I'm going to run around this maze that kind of just looks like Pac-Man and I have to collect one to two items to kind of progress while trying to avoid this baddie that is this generally, you know, uh, very poorly pixelated version of whatever the main monster was supposed to be. Uh, Neil, what was kind of your first uh, introduction to a game that was adapted from a horror film? Primary. I was probably Alien 3, I suppose. The, the, the Mega Drive <laughs> Same for me. Yeah, you know, a film I was obsessed about anyway, but... Um, the game is okay, but it's just, and it has kind of that mood that feels in between the three movies in tone. It just doesn't feel like one or the other or the other, but there's a bit of everything in there. Um, yeah, so okay, any game that you could play Alien, uh, an Alien game, it was great. Um, luckily, after that, we did get some decent ones in the terms of the uh, Alien trilogy, Alien Resurrection, and... Uh, then when we got, uh, what was it, uh, the Aliens vs. Predator games, which you know, were always like big hitters for me. I mean, it, yeah, this is that subject for me, which you know, it, when I started Bloody Disgusting was a thing that one of the earliest column ideas I started up was you know, based on the hit film, which was just going over this very sort of thing. You know? um, and the thing that really fascinated me about it is having it as an extension of film, you know, where it doesn't have to just be a straight adaptation, but maybe like build a universe out, was the, the Blair Witch games, the, the trilogy of games that came out early on, um, and how they ended up sort of 
adding to these little folk tales we heard you know around the Blair Witch and all the mythology that had been built up and I was so into that anyway that it was fine playing games that were a bit rough and ready but had all this sort of information extra stuff to it you know that was the first time I really saw the ambition that could be applied to you know a license like that and making it go somewhere else and add to the experience even if even if it isn't you know comparable as a you know to the impact of the film it, it still adds to it which i much prefer i think in those early days because as you say most of those games we had weren't like that they were just you know here's the 2d side scroller with this on it that on it i mean you could look at so many games of that era and they are identical they just happened to have a different skin on top and there you go but yeah it's they were sort of the formative experiences in terms of that. Yeah, it was it was interesting, you know, um, going back and watching some videos of Alien 3, which, you know, like you, was my first introduction to it. And, you know, seeing that it was basically trying to latch on to something almost like mm. Contra, right? This kind of two side-scrolling uh, running gun. And yet it doesn't end up being indicative of like the tone of the film, right? Which is clearly, you know, not what they were going for just because how do you stretch David Fincher's film out into a game that is, you know, however many hours long? Um, but uh, I think that it's interesting just to see, you know, through the eras, how you can see certain development changes and sort of, you know, what something Ian said at the beginning where, you know, a good deal of uh, maybe the negativity that surrounds these movie tie-in games is that they were tied to marketing, right? So clearly, you know, they had a rush development or just latching on to perhaps trends in development from games of that specific era that they saw more as like, okay, this is a sort of the framework we're going to take and then just slap on this IP onto it, which, you know, we'll get into, of course, some of our uh, favorites and standouts. But Ian, I would love to hear what your sort of first uh, encounter was with a video game adaptation uh, of a horror film, whether positive or negative. So I'm actually really having a laugh over here because mine was also Alien, but it was Alien Trilogy for the PS1. And I have a very fond memory of, because, you know, uh, super short story. I was poor growing up, so we really got like bargain bin games. So whenever we went over to my mom's friend's houses, we got to see new games. And I remember going over there and being like, oh, what are you playing? Can I play Crash Bandicoot again? And he's <laughs> like, no. I got this new game. You need to check it out. So he's got me set up and he got me to start playing the game. And I remember the moment he walked out of the room, just being so scared. <laughs> now that there wasn't this older person to be like, no, I'll show you how to play. And then navigating the corridors, learning first person controls on the PlayStation and then getting inevitably killed by an alien had such an impact on me. And then he came back in the room and I was just sitting there with the TV off. And I was like, I didn't win the game. It's OK. I don't need to play more. <laughs> Yeah, that definitely, uh, re I can relate to that a lot, you know, going over to a friend's house and basically it was up to them, right? What, cause they were the ones that had all the games I had was lucky to get a game, you know, every, every quarter, uh, or something like that. And so that was really how I was sort of inundated with horror. You know, I've talked about on the show before, just like getting to play games that my buddies would be fortunate enough to own, but maybe, and I use brave with big air quotes, but like brave enough to actually play themselves. So they would watch me play it. We talked about it last week with uh, a guest with Resident Evil Code Veronica, like just the fact that so many of us have a story similar to that, where it's like taking advantage of the fact that a friend or a neighbor has these games. And then that's sort of like our education, if you will, and break out into horror. And, um, you know, as a kid growing up reading, 
comics constantly or flipping through like Wizard Magazine, just seeing sort of the uh, the double page splash ads for so many of these movie games, specifically, you know, horror um, was kind of like my introduction to so many of those games that I wouldn't end up playing for years later. But uh, they definitely kind of stuck in my brain. And it was just interesting to go from seeing ads of games, which then informed me about, you know, films that would go on to become some of my favorite films, like obviously Aliens uh, films, but also stuff like Darkman. Right. Seeing that ad splashed all across the page of, uh, you know, 90s comics and things like that uh, was uh, an introduction to a whole subgenre of games that I would love. But I'm curious, you know, for you, Ian, what makes a, you know, a game that's adapting from a film um, like successful in utilizing that IP? See, now it's difficult because I think the most important thing is always going to be nailing the vibe. And the vibe's going to change so much from film to film. So it's always hard, you know, like an Evil Dead game certainly should not have the same tone as something based on like a slasher property. But then like uh, like you were saying earlier with the way that so many of those games were just slapped on the pre-existing designs, it's unfortunately one of the shortcomings of all those old NES games is because I don't think there's an effective way outside of uh, another video game based off a horror movie. Sweet Home, I think, did it really well. It was brave enough to make it a turn-based RPG to like keep that dread and to let really feature the monsters. But then on the flip side, you got games like Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, where it's just, it's a platformer, you know? Friday the 13th has some quote-unquote puzzle elements, if you want to call it that, if you want to talk about going around and finding items. But Nightmare on Elm Street is just a four-player platformer, you know? So the vibe is completely lost there. And uh, that's the hardest thing to maintain. You know, games have tried for a long time. Even the original Evil Dead on the ZX Spectrum, I think, does a better job of selling the vibe than any NES horror game does. Yeah, I mean, it is that simple. And when you are limited, like they were back then, it's important to find some sort of common ground, I think. Even if it is just some sort of chip-tuny version of the famous piece of music or, you know, just a certain color scheme that works, you know, Whatever you can grab at, and yeah, I think what you were saying there with that Evil Dead game, it was just a case of just having certain images, certain things that work with it, and it was enough mm-hmm. for the time, you know. No, absolutely, and even just the choice to like not feature a lot of colors. Not that the ZX Spectrum was known for being super colorful, but you most certainly could get away with having a lot of like the bright pinks yeah. and the greens and such. But the fact that the game chooses to overlay everything and have as much darkness as possible, as much earth tones really trying to get you to feel like, no, you're in a cabin in the dark woods. This isn't a fun place to be. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, you know, there are modern games that kind of riff on that now, you know, we know a lot anyway do try to sort of riff old school horror games, but you know, you get a few that are very much that ilk from that sort of spectrum era of like low colors, low poly sort of design where there's a haunting effectiveness to things. Even though, Mm It's mostly to do with you know, the limitations of the system, which is you know, a really smart thing to do, you know, I think. And it's good to see that there are people out there that still kind of understand that. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Limitations breed creativity. Yeah, you know? they do. I mean, you just think of where we are now, you know, with the, the, as you were saying about licensed horror games now, they are on the up. And we have all this technology and all these ideas we could come up with. And for some reason, they're all going along the same sort of formula, which is fine. You know, it gets those IP out there, but some of them just don't feel like that's the best idea for them or the best use of them. I would Yeah, I would almost compare it in a way to sort of the perception of 
remakes of films, right? I think it used to be that the reason you remade a film was that you could recreate, you know, classical moments in film history and these things, but, you know, utilizing upgraded camera techniques and of course, you know, high definition and all these things. And when I think about, you know, early game adaptations of films, it was more built around the idea of like trying to recreate moments from movies for the games and letting the player have agency in those moments. Whereas now we've seen a shift, which we've also seen with like remakes of allowing creatives to take more creative liberties with things, which is why when you get into some of the games that we're going to talk about today, um, they're not following the blueprint of a specific film to Ian's point, right? They're really capitalizing on the tone or the theme of those. And, you know, of course, utilizing elements that make their respective film or IP that they're you know being adapted from stand out in a way that, you know, genre fans are going to love, but at the same time, you know, expanding whether it be on lore or mechanics or just overall gameplay experience. Um, and I find that that's, you know, fostered a whole new generation of creativity. Um, and, you know, even looking back, seeing some of these experiences that perhaps were ahead of the time, like not to get too ahead of ourselves, but uh, something like the thing game, which, you know, expands on mm-hmm. the concept of the thing and the types of monsters you fight and the plethora of monsters that you fight, right. is very different than the more, um, I suppose, you know, singular monster at a certain point in the film that you're fighting. But, you know, taking that IP and stretching it out to a game that is six to eight to potentially 10 hours, um, perhaps that was a reason why maybe that game wasn't, you know, revered back in the day when it was released just because of, you know, how different it probably felt to people from the original uh, film that it was based on. Yeah, I think you can. There was an era where you if you did something a bit ambitious, you really had to back it up because you know it could really just capsize your whole game if something was out of whack. Which is you know so while you can kind of look back fondly in a way and understand why the game might have had its problems, it's, at the same time you're there, then it was a killer. You know, it's like for the casual audience, we're like, well, I'm not immediately enjoying this like game X or game Y, so away it goes, sort of thing. And I think that was a game that really, really did suffer from. You know, taking its time to uh, <laughs> show its better qualities, if you will. It's funny too. Uh, John Carpenter actually had his hands in yeah. that game in uh, quite a few different places, to the point where he's actually a character yeah. inside the game. That's it. And I think that a lot of that is probably just John Carpenter being like, "If you're going to adapt my game, you're going to adapt my movie." Yeah, that's it. And I, you know, I think if you have a director who's fond of games like Carpenter is anyway, it's uh, you know, who else would be better to sort of input on that. Mm-hmm. On that note, please let John Carpenter make a Dead Space movie. The man's yeah, been asking on, for years. Like, Just let him make it. It's like, what's the harm? Let's do it. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> what are you afraid of, EA? Be too cool? Yeah, huh? that's it. What's wrong? <laughs> well, it is the type of thing that's like a dream scenario, right? To have somebody, not only that it has this storied career in horror filmmaking, but, you know, and I'm always uh, hesitant to be like, well, they're a true gamer. They're perfect for the project. But somebody that clearly has a love of games, right? And is very gen- and always comes off as genuine when they're talking about games and interviews and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's always, you know, it's funny to see initially being seeing him like go to bat for like Fallout 76. But then once you see, you know, him breaking down the elements of what he likes about it, you know, it comes from a place of somebody that clearly, you know, lo- just wants to, you know, smoke, watch basketball and play games, which, you know, you can't fault the man for that. Mm-hmm. Um, But I would love to know, you know, some lesser, maybe loved um, game adaptations of film that 
don't get quite the credit that they deserve that you guys have enjoyed in the past. Uh, Ian, I'd love to start with you. So I'm glad you asked, because frankly, I've got two here that don't get brought up enough. And the first is, of course, Sweet Home. And that one's a little trickier because for English speaking audiences, you would have had to have gotten either a ROM hack or a reproduction card. But it truly is a fantastic game that I believe nails the style of the film. It accurately tells the story, you know, while adding on a little extra. It does turn it into a turn based RPG. So there's a lot of game there. But it maintains the dreadful vibe. It maintains the feeling of finality that any of your people can die any moment. And that's it, buddy. You can't rewind the movie and bring them back. You got to keep going. And then especially the creature designs in Sweet Home are so fantastic. I'm glad this game didn't exist on NES when I was a kid because it would have ruined me. You know, (laughs) I would have came out all messed up if I played this when I was like under 10 years old. But uh, another one is Zombie for, I believe, again, the ZX Spectrum. That expecting got a lot of really good games, but Zombie was an adaptation of Romero's Dawn of the Dead, only available in European markets. And it was a really cool adventure style game where you had to navigate the entire mall and survive zombies and such. And you got to play as multiple characters. And I mean, it did so well for the time, but was so underappreciated. I'm actually glad they brought it back with Zombie U to try and reinvent it. But unfortunately, without the the uh, the license for the Romero universe and Dawn of the Dead, it just really didn't have that impact. But those two specifically, Sweet Home and Zombie, are two games that I think don't get enough love for accurately representing the world of the game they take place in. And even if gameplay-wise, it's not what everybody would want. And I know a lot of people will say that turn-based takes a lot of the horror out. And in some cases, I would tend to agree. But I do think that both of those games really hit it out of the park with their technical limitations while delivering a like accurate representation of the film they're based on. I'm adding both of those to my list. I don't know how I'm going to be able to play them, but it sounds like those are uh, a couple of standouts that I definitely need to dive into. What uh, what about you, Neil? There's a few that you find aren't uh, as loved as they deserve to be. Well, I don't know about deserve to be necessarily, but from, I, I, from I an enjoyment standpoint, the, the yeah, yeah. I mean, I already brought up the Blair Witch games, you know, and Rustin Park. I think it was a really good sort of almost Lynchian game, you know, in a lot of ways that sometimes on purpose, sometimes not, but, um, you know, just by the way of it was telling its story. But yeah, it just did some crazy shit that just added so much to, to the story for me in a way that I didn't think was possible. You know, I would remember being very sore about the idea of, you know, Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, and it being so, so much of a departure from what the original film was, you know, now take it for what it is uh, as a sort of weird meta commentary on you know that first film but yeah so i like that you could go around exploring some of the locations in a different time period and just it had genuine dread to it at times you know i think you know some of that's caused just by the way the game is uh controls but there's also just and you know the nature of it is that sort of early days survival horror game that isn't made by certain companies and do you have this very uh almost a european feel to it you know which um hard to explain but it just it doesn't feel quite the same as um if you were playing a capcom game or a konami game at that time it it, it, it felt like someone coming in with a very old school idea of what pc gaming was which is worked for me at the time you know i think um beyond that I mean, it's a cult classic in its own right and has effectively been remade 
Um, but not as man eater, but Jaws Unleashed was always great fun for me. I just thought it was utterly daft. You know, it took that whole Jaws for the revenge sort of idea. It's just like, no, this shark is fucking smart and it's just, it's got a vengeance against you and that's it. Like that. And just, but you know, it was the good version. So if anything, it was a really good remake or a continuation of that. So yeah, that should, it deserves full marks for that alone. But yeah, it, it was fun and it didn't try to be as tongue in cheek as, um, Manny it was, mm. which, and it, it was just to, Straight up, honest to goodness. No, you're a shark and you just eat things. And, you know, Jaws has had some weird games over the years, but that was a really, really good time. I really really enjoyed that. You know, it became one of the earliest things on the column I did at Bloody Disgusting that I wrote about about that because I I just was so in love with that film, so in love with the history of games that got made about it. And, yeah, yeah, I I really did enjoy that one. Yeah, one that I really enjoyed as a kid, and I, you know, I haven't played it since its release, uh, so I can't speak to how well it holds up. But was uh, 2004's The X Files Resistor Serve, which basically feels uh. like you know a clone of you know classic Resi or Silent Hill or something. You know, has that kind of framework to it. Um, but that was really the first time, and you know, that's obviously a TV series that then would go on to have I don't even know how many films, two or three films at that point. But that was really my first introduction later in life to like serialized horror sci-fi television that was being adapted into a full-fledged game and it was you know at the at the time i was able to go in and buy that instead of like resident evil or whatever because you know that one flew under the radar uh, a little bit more with my parents but that was the type of game that you know it was further showing me the types of experiences that you could have in survival horror right because i was learning about games through magazines or from neighbors. I didn't obviously have like an older brother that could show me these types of games. And so this was my first introduction to survival horror outside of Resident Evil and, you know, Silent Hill. Um, And that was really interesting to, you know, if at the end of the day, it kind of feels like a bare bones Resi survival horror clone, if you will. But I thought that that was really a standout example um, of, you know, utilizing an IP in an interesting way because it, you know, it had the voice actors, of course, that uh, voice actors were, you know, Mulder and Scully. Um, and that mm. was my first introduction to something like that, to see a game that could have production value that rivaled television or film uh, from that regard, right? Getting to see people from the source material being involved in that, which, you know, at the time blew my mind because uh, that was the first time I'd yeah. been exposed to that. And then um, I think it was just the next year. And, you know, technically it's a adventure game, but Peter Jackson's King Kong which, you know, that game really does feel like a survival horror game in a lot of regards. Uh, maybe not when you're controlling uh, King Kong or whatever, but, you know, fighting against <laughs> these monsters, these like uh, worm monsters that have giant pincers or these crab creatures or even, you know, facing off with velociraptors, kind of channeling Dino Crisis almost. Um, that was really fantastic. And the first example of a game I played that removed the HUD completely, that was really the, you know, you can't check your health. I don't believe even when you want to go and check how much ammo you have. Um, I think the characters actually call that out. There's no sort of, you know, pop up on screen mm-hmm. or there's no checking the magazine, even like condemn criminal origin style. It was just them saying how many rounds they had. And I think even, and maybe I'm misremembering, but I'm pretty sure that it wasn't approximate. It was sort of these just vague sort of like, oh, you have around 20 shots left. 
which kind of had this element of, yeah. oh, okay, so I still need to, I need to be extra cautious in how I approach these scenarios. Cause you know, maybe I have 20, maybe I have 23. Oh, maybe I've got 17. And you know, when you're playing on the harder difficulties and the uh, overall sort of survival aspect of that game, it makes those interactions of uh, combat, you know, a lot more intense. Um, and, you know, it's not technically a horror game, but I would say that that game definitely has some horror adjacent uh, elements to it. And mm-hmm. also an example of the cast and crew from the film doing the VO for the game was really, really cool, especially after, you know, seeing the movie and then the next week or whatever playing the game. And of course, it takes some liberties uh, with the story or the plotting or whatnot. But, you know, that again, you know, for uh, for Adolescent Jay was like a milestone game, I think, in just that merging of film and game and seeing those two worlds uh, collide. Yeah. So on that note, that is a, a fantastic game. And I do think you're right on the money. He would pull the clip out and he'd say something along the lines of like, yeah. oh, it's about half full yeah. or like this one's pretty full. But I think because uh, I also played that game when I was younger. The thing that always freaked me out the most was the realization that you have no more ammo left and you need to run around and find a stick. <laughs> and that moment of like you hear a velociraptor snapping its teeth and you're just running around looking for a sharp stick to stab or throw at it. And uh, yeah, I think I just lost a year of my life <laughs> thinking about that, actually. <laughs> that game yeah, was I freaky. mean, that was really the survival aspect of that game was is that you weren't allowed to feel like you were a super soldier, right? I think you can only have one gun. And like you said, if you run out of bullets and you're not in the immediate vicinity of other ammo, then you have to go around with the stick and start poking stuff. But that furthermore, you know, reinforces that survival angle where, you know, there's like tall grass that you can sneak through, uh, you know, for a brief stealth section or something. But at the same time, you could like bait the dinosaurs, I believe, with different, you know, uh, animal carcasses and things like that. And so to see that blending of survival and then the horror of, you know, in your face, these mutations, uh, mutated insects and whatnot. uh, Yeah, that's a game that sticks in my mind far more than it should for a game that I think I only played like once. And I don't remember it being terribly long, but it was definitely a game that I think took those horror adjacent elements and folded it into something that, you know, was really surprising for the time. And, you know, even now, you know, we're talking about the history of uh, games based on IPs. Uh, It definitely is a standout. And I think that that's one that maybe has had more of a sort of resurgence of uh, people saying like, yeah, you know, that was actually far more solid than a lot of those tie-in type games that we were getting in that era. Um, But, you know, it's just a shame that that didn't happen for like, I don't know, 10, 15 years after its initial release. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that still like available as a backwards compatible game on Xbox? Oh. I think it's a 360 version. That I'm not anyway. sure, but that would definitely be what. Great. Something else to throw on in my back catalog <laughs> for the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember um, uh, a writer called Cole Henry did a column for me once about that and mentioned about having played it on backwards compatibility. And I was like, yeah, that would be. But yeah, I think it is like the 360 version because it, it was obviously it came out during the Xbox original Xbox era. But yeah, so yeah, probably be fucking 500 pounds or something. <laughs> it, but you know, so. well, I <laughs> did try to find a uh, a used copy of the Thing game, right? Because I never got to play that, unfortunately. Mm. Um, uh, I was lucky. I found that for like 50p in a boot sale, I think, a few years ago, and I was like, "Yep, I'm keeping hold of you're, that." You're <laughs> so breaking my heart there, Neil. That's <laughs> incredibly jealous of that, but. I think that, you know, that's one of those, and I'm not going to get on, I promise I'm not getting on a whole soapbox about the accessibility of game sing again, but, <laughs> you know, I 
tweeted before we were recording this episode where it was like, I would give anything to be able to go back and play some of these games, even if, you know, even the ones I mentioned, perhaps they don't hold up as well as I remember them. Maybe the thing game barely scratches the itch of what I would want in a thing game. But just having the ability to go back and play these games without, you know, going through some other means online and whatnot, it would, you know, there's that history aspect. These things are going to be lost to time if people are not, you know, doing this sort of digital upkeeping, if you will, or digital cataloging of making these game types of games accessible, especially the ones that, you know, for the most part, were not as beloved or well-received at the time of their release, which, you know, the people at the top of these companies are like, well, why would we do this again? But for the preservation aspect of games and culture and all those things, like that's vastly important. Yeah. And I think licensed games are especially susceptible to this because gaming is so young by comparison as a medium that, you know, that mm-hmm. it was always seen as a short-term thing. So, oh, yeah, we'll just let you have this license for a bit. Yeah, you know, never really thinking of the long term impact of what that would do. You, you've seen it with movies in a lot of ways as well. When studios go under and you lose bunches of films at a time each time over, you know, I think even places like MGM has like died about a thousand deaths and lost films and films and films over the years. But yeah, it's you don't want to get to that stage. But I think it is unfortunately just this necessary lesson along the way that you know. We aren't probably going to learn uh, as a, a whole community, but you know, there are ways and means, hopefully, to uh, keep some of them alive, at least. The, the ones that are important, especially. But, yeah, it, even the shitty ones, it'd be nice to just have something, you know, that you could just go back and go, oh, yeah, it's good to see how, where we were and where we come from and really have a, a sense of the history because... There's a lot of nowism about you know video games where it's just like oh yeah I remember this game this retro game that was like ten years ago <laughs> right. or something it's like <laughs> to call I mean the fact that we're remaking Dead Space and the company that made it what fourteen years ago is dead you know and yeah. it's like <laughs> it is remarkable but yeah it's um, I think like you know I was mentioning about Jaws Unleashed and it's like that company had been going twenty five years until that game they made Echo the Dolphin. You know, it's like, that was the last, Jaws Unleashed was the last game. It's like, mad, you know, and you can't buy it, can't get anything like that. And it's like, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. On that note, it's rough too, because I feel like with a lot of games, uh, indie games or games weighed by smaller teams, you can make the argument that it's preservation of art. Hmm. And a lot of people would agree with you. We've had some circumstances where developers have been willing to dump their code because they're outside of the point where they're making profit and they realize the value of having it out there. I just think you'd have a hard time doing that with licensed properties yeah. because the studio always wants a cut. And I just think you'll you'll have a hard time convincing Fox to give away the like, you know, the 1982 ZX Spectrum Alien game, which funny enough on what Jay said earlier was a literal Pac-Man clone. Because it's their property, yeah. they'll never get a penny from it. So why would? Well, yeah, and now, especially with their current ownership, they, they're even mm-hmm. less likely to, to uh, accommodate such a thing. Whenever I talk about old games or classic games, it always pains me because I owned so many of these games. You know, barring of course the thing and whatnot, but I had bought them at the time when I had saved up like what little money I was have I was got as a kid or whatever, 
Um, and then immediately, what did I do when I finished them? Because I wasn't no more money was coming in, so I was like, "Oh, I'll just go trade them in, uh, just so I have some yeah. money to spend mm-hmm. on games." And so, just going through the catalog of oh, like man. the games that I had traded in for, you know, whatever, what like a sixth of their value or what or whatever insane EB Games rates uh, they had back in the day, it just it pains me. It takes talk about taking years off your life. <laughs> No, amen to that, 100%. If I could go back in time, that's like one of two things. Don't sell your games, invest in Apple. We'll be back in 20 years. (laughs) Yeah, invest in Apple, invest in Netflix, invest in (laughs) Uber or whatever. (laughs) Don't buy the Ouya. It's not going to take off. So maybe quit your love affair with Sega at the, at the, the Mega Drive. That's it. It's not going to get any better. <laughs> Wait, okay. I feel so bad for the Genesis because they really were like, nah, we're so far ahead. We got a third button. We got whole. We got a whole new sound driver and everything, dude. What are they going to do? Huh? And then they just came out with the, what is it? The warp effects chip and then six buttons. Yeah. I just can't even imagine what Sega HQ looked like on that day, man. <laughs> It just it does just feel like there's like a whiteboard where they're just slapping little post-it notes of like more buttons, bigger noises, bigger things on the graphics. Like maybe let's do like a CD drive. No, it's like it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's like, it's like Did we have any uh, uh guilty pleasure adaptation games that you know we played looking back on were not very good, but you know, still maybe hold I mean somewhat of a special place in our hearts? Two thousand percent the Evil Dead games for PlayStation One. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair one. I mean, uh, mine would never actually be uh, horror ones, uh, horror only in the sense of how bad mm. they were. Um, which is um, James Bond PS One game Tomorrow mm. Never Dies. Yeah, but bad Bond film, <laughs> bad game. But I, I really like that Cheryl Crow. Oh. So <laughs> like, it, it, it was like good to play like that intro mm. bit of the game and then get like actually get the Bond credits with that song going. It was like I replayed that bit a lot. But yeah, the game beyond it is fucking horrendous. But it is it was just yeah, best twenty five quid I ever spent for a song I already owned. Well, that was one of the things, right? Back in the day when you didn't, ex- you weren't flush with cash and games weren't coming in constantly is that you would play it, you'd buy something based on how it looked, right? And then if it ends up being shit, it's like, well, you're still going to play it, right? What, are you just going to let it sit there? Uh, and so for me, that was uh, the Land of the Dead game, uh, Land of the Dead Road to Fiddler's Green, which, Bro. you know, is just this kind of oh. generic linear corridor crawler first person shooter. But I remember it being, you know, the... I don't know if I want to say it was the first zombie game I played. That, that can't be right. But it was one that, you know, I had just seen the film at a buddy's house at a sleepover or whatever. And then, you know, the budget title, talk, talk about uh, cash in tie-ins. As soon as I saw that EB Games, and it should have been a warning that it was like a twenty nine ninety nine game or whatever budget value at the time. Um, but I, that game sort of holds a, a special place in my heart. It was the first time I ever used a door uh, as a way to block zombies. And then they came like tearing through the door after a few hits, uh, which, you know, now is commonplace with stuff like Left for Dead or Back for Blood. But that game, for whatever reason, has uh, swam around in my brain for far longer than it should. <laughs> now, I remember wanting that game, even though the reviews said it was yeah. bad because I just love zombies. Yeah. I was like, I don't care. I'll play it. <laughs> well, that's the thing, right? I think that it was more, it was probably less about you know whether or not the game was good but it was like oh shit i would rather play a zombie game than uh whatever i don't know madden whatever my buddies were obsessed with at the time yeah um but i think before we dive into maybe some newer 
adaptations and, you know, some of our uh, perhaps pitches or wish list for games that we would love to see adapted from some beloved horror films. Uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll dive into those. And we are back from our break, and uh, we're going to dive into some newer adaptations of horror games that have, uh, you know, been around uh, perhaps not as long as some of the retro ones we have, but perhaps we this will be the point where we start to see a shift from simply taking an IP, trying to cash in on it on something that at the end of the day feels fairly generic and something that, you know, nowadays takes some more creative liberties. Uh, Ian, so you sent us a list ahead of this with some games that you wanted to chat about uh, in particular. Uh, which would you like to start with? So actually, if I can hit somewhere in the middle, one I want to talk about because I never see it get brought up and it seems like it really went under the radar but have either of you seen the 2018 film, The Wind? It's a supernatural Western film. I've, I've seen the trailer. It, yeah, but the it, woman's the isolated out so, in the desert, right? Yeah, exactly. It's an okay film. But what a lot of people don't know is that Airdorf, the developer of the Faith trilogy, actually made a tie-in game for this title, for this movie, in his classic ZX style. So if you if you are out there and you're like, the wind doesn't get enough appreciation, I would give anything to have more <laughs> of the wind in my life, then you can actually go out there and it's available for free on HIO. You can play a video game adaptation by Airdorf about the wind. Wow. I'm looking at this right oh, now. Yeah, this shit. looks incredible. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I remember it, it showed up and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then it went just like the wind. It went away, <laughs> man. And no one talked about it ever again. That's, that's weird as well because I remember seeing – something about it and then just like you said it just it was done that was it because i very much did feel like that, that sort of uh here's the thing promotional now we will never speak of this again sort of thing but uh yeah but yeah that, that's that's wild that's, it's the weird it's the weird area in the venn diagram where indie gaming and promotional movie tie-ins meet <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean yeah especially in an official capacity as well which mm-hmm. is um you know something i've loved to see more of especially with indie horror you know, in film, they would sort of reach out to indie developers. I mean, that's what one of the great things that Dread XP is doing with like the creep show thing. You know, with which is I know not indie indie, but it's still small enough that it's nice to see a small developer that has history in that sort of thing. You know, the publisher has history in doing anthology games for an anthology series. Perfect match. You know, I hope that works out so much because that would be a great you know, catalyst for. Letting other people go, oh, yeah, that worked well. Let's try and get this to this developer or this to this publisher and um, see how it goes. No, I absolutely agree. And I think it's wild because when it comes to a lot of forms of marketing, people are more willing to take on work from smaller artists when it's visual or audio things. But for Mm -hmm. some reason, whenever it comes to like programs or even like, you know, in this day and age, we don't see a lot of on the shelf video game adaptations, but we see a lot of mobile adaptations of movies, but even those are typically handled by larger studios. And I'm, you know, I'm most certainly not in the industry, so I can't say for certain, but I wonder if there is a stigma about contacting indie devs to work on these titles. Like an indie dev isn't as reliable, not relatable, isn't as reliable as a big studio or what the concern is. Because left and right, it seems like small artists get their work picked up for advertisements all the time, but indie devs are always left in the dust. Yeah, I think we're at that point, at the same point cinema was in when it was, you know, think of 70s, 80s, especially where you'd have these up and coming, you know, directors with their, you know, 
ratchety, you know, put together nuts and bolts sort of things, end up making this, you know, underground hit, and then you know they get to get a studio film, and then eventually out of it, and then you know that sort of paved the way, go forward, and then now we're at the other stage where it's like someone makes one darling indie film, and there you are, you're on the Marvel slab straight away, and curse you, Taika Waititi. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I. I just wonder that it's just going to take that one small example that will then make the, the the whole industry see, oh, no, this could work. We could actually make something of this. But I think it's visually is where it comes to into it. And I think certain properties are only going to, and you know, people behind them are only going to be interested in something that is big budget, grandiose. And I mean, the thing is, I don't think they'd really care what the game was. Really, when you come down to it, Lord knows, because you know, look what they let Square Enix do with the Avengers. You know, it's, <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, you know, they put they pick a developer that doesn't have any history in that kind of genre to make a game they've never done done before, and then act surprised. But you know, money. But there you go. But having this on the lower end, where it's like, no, go on, just give a smaller team, smaller stuff. And I think horror's been doing that to a degree. You know, with with games, we have to say because you look at most of these games that we got licenses for, you know, and, and the teams that are doing it, they're not big names, really, are they? It's like you know, Saber Interactive doing Evil Dead is like great. You know, they got that and World War Z. It's like, but you know, and if they hadn't got that World War Z license and done such a good job with it, you know, who's to say they would have got the Evil yeah, Dead job? That's a good point. You know, so it, it's so it's great that they got that. And you, you look at a gun, you know, and doing stuff like Texas Chainsaw, doing uh, Friday the 13th. It's like the thing that stuck out there is that their pure love of what they were doing and for the source material shone through, even through problems and whatever else that went on outside of it. And subsequently, they've got to make another game now based on another license. So it's great. So we just need one of them to stick and really work out but they can't all be asymmetrical multiplayer <laughs> yeah. games because you're, you're, you're fighting the fight against the thing that doesn't... We've seen in certain multiplayer spaces where the thing that's on top doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to feel tonally correct. You know, Fortnite is what it is. It can have all the horror characters in there at once. It doesn't matter if it matters or if it makes sense. They, they will be there. You know, and people go, oh, yeah, cool. I'll, I'll pick up this Jason Voorhees skin one day hopefully and you know and and but it doesn't matter he's using a gun yeah. um but yeah to entrust a, an indie developer with something it means that they have to be accurate and careful and detailed and then make a game that enough people will not bitch and whine about to be successful which is hard um you you have to reach that point where dead by daylight got to where it's like it doesn't matter anymore there's, there's enough people playing it that don't bitch and won't moan about it enough to stop playing that you can just add what the fuck you like in there and it will keep going oh i mean i've got quite a few friends who bitch and moan constantly and don't stop playing as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's a sign of a good multiplayer game a successful one but is you will have an audience that just will not shut up about how much they hate it uh, you know in sports in Call of Duty, in even in these horror games, you, you have an audience that are like, "No, this is shit. This is terrible. When's the next one out? I want to play that." <laughs> that sort of thing. It's like, <laughs> well, oh, man. you know. So let's put aside the fact that like so many of these titles are going the asymmetrical multiplayer route because you know 
devs are seeing the success that are happening with other games in that same market are like, oh, if we take a beloved yeah. IP, we could do something similar to that. I wonder if part of it also is the fact that when you make a game that is, you know, asymmetrical multiplayer focused, the authenticity sort of aspect of it that would be inherent to a single player version of that type of adapting of a uh, IP like that. I wonder if that has something to do with it too, because, you know, if you went the single player route with let's use killer clouds from outer space as an example, because that's the one that's, you know, on the horizon. Um, let's say if they were to do a single player game that didn't capture the feeling of that film or didn't have elements of it that people view as being inherent to the authenticity of that specific IP, there would be a great deal mm -hmm. of backlash that would come from that, I would imagine. You know, you can apply that to anything, yeah. right? The Friday 13th game, the upcoming Texas Chainsaw Massacre game, if they were to make a single-player version of those. I feel like if one thing was off about that, the devs would never hear the end of it, and, you know, there would be a whole uproar about it. So I wonder sometimes if the hesitation yeah. to go the single-player route is to avoid that type of backlash. Granted, they're going to hear from fans of the genre or fans of, you know, the uh, film or just gamers in general, right? If they go the asymmetrical multiplayer route, because there's this always an uproar of it when people make those announcements. Um, I just wonder if that's part of the reason why we don't see more single player focused, you know, IP uh, adaptations like that. Yeah. I mean, I, when I did an article um, on Dread XP for, about this, you know, which um, got slightly dragged over the coals by uh, as a member of Gun. Um, but yeah, it, it does come to something that you, you have this many games doing it and i totally understand why i don't think it's just because you know everyone's doing it it's a success, successful right. model it does work for the kind of thing licenses they're using most of the time it's like the evil dead teaming up to take on ai demon hordes with other people and having the, the fact that anyone could be possessed it makes sense it makes total sense and there's a game that works to the strengths of that yeah, and Friday the Thirteenth, for for all its troubles you know, that it had, kind of makes sense. Yeah, you know, could it have been done better? Of course, but you know, and I think even Texas Chainsaw, I think you are taking the family aspect of that and having people surviving against family. Yeah, again, it works, uh, and even Killer Clowns, I I get it, and I get why we keep going back to this world, but it can't be the only way you right. can do things. And it's like. This is why you have to be slightly cynical about it and say, well, then, yeah, it kind of has to be because, well, that works. People like this. Let's do it. But I would like to just point out a recent game that did it very well, was absolutely competent what it did, fun. Who the fuck's talking about it is Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed. It's like... Who is talking I th I think about it? <laughs> You're right, man. <laughs> it's like, it's a really good example of the genre. It's family-friendly. And nothing just came out and went. I played it, and I know that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I think it's really, honest to God, goodness, one of the better examples of this. And yet, there you go. It, it just misses something. It, I don't get. It is just because the market is so saturated. And if you're going to go down that route, the risk with online games, especially in you know niche horror <laughs> areas, is you only have so much space to compete in and there is the real risk that one day your game will be rendered irrelevant because you can't pay for the servers anymore. And unless you have a, a big enough fan base to care to keep it going, 
it's just going to die like that. Now, Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed at least does one thing right in that you don't have to play with other people. You can just play with bots. So, you know, it's kind of future-proofed a little in that regard. It has a little story attached to it, so it isn't just all about going into matches. But and I like that as a progressive step in where we're going with this. And I think that's probably what Gunn are going to do with Texas Chainsaw as well. There'll be more elements of, you know, taking the risk out of things. But, especially, you know, especially if you do come up against these licensed snafus, it's like, at least then your game is safe to a degree. You know, but... Yeah, so I, this is why I think we need to sort of be, you know, have a bit more boldness and letting people try more single player stuff, which, as I said, is why it was so great to see Creepshow being used as like a good plot for going here, make an anthology, you know, game. Brilliant. Works. That, that's exactly what works. And, you know, we, we've seen it out there. We've seen the Dreadx collections do this. So yeah, it is a fantastic fit. And I, hope we see more because of that i think also with some single player routes that they go like sometimes it can be something that at the end of the day feels very generic just because of the type of experience that it delivers like let's say for instance the friday the 13th game let's say that that had a single player campaign where you're playing as jason and you go about what you do basically in the multiplayer game but in a single player capacity right i think we need to start devs need to think outside the box and i have two examples that i'll be brief with but games such as um aliens infestation have you guys heard of this game that was a ds Mm -hmm. game from 2011 that's basically a metroidvania game but set in the aliens universe that as far as i remember is not connected to like ripley or any of the sort of pre-existing storylines but an example of that being something that you know i don't believe we had had a metroidvania alien style experience up until that point So the idea that you wouldn't just go the traditional, what is typically found in alien adaptation games, which is just the first person shooter route, which, you know, not to say there's anything wrong with that. It makes perfect sense. But taking that IP and putting it into a gameplay style, that would be the last thing that at least I would think that they would ever do. And that game ended up being a ton of fun in one of, you know, the DS games that I actually remember really enjoying. Uh, Another one would be like the mummy demastered which is the same type of thing right i mean they take (laughs) what i thought to be a shit film and then applied it to a style of gameplay that i would never think that they would do and you know granted it has very little to do with the actual uh movie itself but i found that to be you know an in a entertaining spin on and again you know not to keep flogging the film but uh, a film i didn't enjoy very much but it (laughs) gave and birthed a game that while shared very little it played with that universe in an interesting way that ended up being, you know, this fun Metroidvania style uh, sort of 2D side scroller. Um, and I think that, you know, breaking outside of the box of what people typically associate with specific, uh, whether it be IPs or even genres, um, can yield, you know, really creative results. Um, and especially, you know, when you're talking about a handheld console uh, with Aliens Infestation, the limitations of that console and the tech behind it and the fact that they delivered this aliens game that uh is probably one of my favorite alien adaptations that they've made yeah somewhere a wb executive who's listening to this is just writing metroidvania and <laughs> letters on a whiteboard <laughs> underlining it twice <laughs> so uh really quickly one thing i want to talk about we we touched on it a little bit earlier but the the shortcomings of asymmetrical horror asymmetrical multiplayer horror adaptations because I, I enjoy these games, and I do think they're a lot of fun to play. And I think they're excellent at fostering an environment of an anxiety. 
but I don't think that they're often scary. And I think the reason for that is, is because at the end of the match, it's either going to be the guy who killed me going, you fucking idiot, I gutted you like a fish, you were so slow, you dumbass. Or it's going to be the guy I killed going, oh yeah, sorry, your mom was making me a sandwich when you grabbed me. And that's going to immediately kill all of that tension. The feeling of being a survivor or being a killer is immediately gone the moment that timer hits zero. It's like that um, scene in Scary Movie with Shannon Elizabeth when she's basically being you know, gutted by the killer and she's just trash-talking. Yeah, I think that that is the element that um, definitely undercuts a lot of the tension and the fear in that, right? And I think that that always is kind of my main sticking point with asymmetrical games is that the success that I have, whether that be entertainment value or just strategic value, uh, is always dictated by who you're playing with, right? That's Those experiences are obviously so reliant on that critical aspect. But I would wonder if something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre game, and I even had it partially with uh, the Friday the 13th game, when you're isolated from your teammates, perhaps that will be the type of situation that can foster a little more genuine terror. Uh, I can just imagine, you know, running around the Sawyer household, separated from my teammates, and, you know, you either hear one of the fa- fucked up family members, like, talk, muttering to themselves, or, you, of course, you hear the saw, or you see the saw coming through a door that you're about to go into. Like, there are opportunities for moments of genuine terror, but, you know, as we've all said, like, it's so reliant on being in proximity to other people and, you know, <laughs> the uh, trials and tribulations of online multiplayer that uh, inevitably will invade everything. Every experience like that yeah. um, is something still contending I, with. I, yeah. Yeah. Ironically, you kind of have to start simple with that genre. And um, the problem with that is then you just get immediately compared to the standard bearer, which is Dead by Daylight. Uh, which gets away with being simple and not really changing what it does uh, on a fundamental level. But um, not everyone can do that. You know, uh, most games that top that chart tend to try and diversify a little. You know, even Call of Duty has zombies and spec ops and whatever. You know, Fortnite has its you know creative mode that basically rips off any game it wants. So, yeah, for Dead by Daylight in this sort of niche to not do anything. And it, it, it's big trick of saying here's another horror license, like that is commendable. You know, as a business model, great. They, they managed to go over it. And to be fair, they are doing stuff like you know, hooked on you, you know, which is you know, a fun little spin off that came off of you know city memes and ideas. So they're doing something, but you know, anyone else is actually trying harder, I would say, and not getting the same results because they're having to focus on a singular license. And that's never going to compete because, you know, great, you've got a game about the evil there. Here's a game that has Ash in it and some others, all these other mm-hmm. horror things. It's like, it doesn't matter if it's better or not. It's, you know, that's the one at the top of the shop. You, you can't get past that unless you have some sort of magic ingredient. And there's always something. There's always something that people aren't going to connect with. And most of it's down to one thing, which is time. It comes down to that. You get to a point with these games and go, is it really worth my time to carry on with this? And no matter how good the game is, in most cases, the answer is no. <laughs> Looking at you, Alien Isolation. <laughs> that game did not need to be that long. Yeah. <laughs> and yet I still go back. I still go back and still get to that point and go, yeah, I don't like this bit as much. But it's like... <laughs> But at the same time, yeah, it's those first 10 hours especially, it's just I love going back to. 
but that's fine. I, I like that. And I used to do that with movies as well. Where it's like, I like watch this part of the movie over and over again. I don't care so much about this second bit or this third bit, but I, I would just like to get this bit out of the way and uh, really. That's why it. I've always Sometimes loved that okay. feature of selecting levels in games. Just so that way, as soon as I finish a mm-hmm. game, typically what I'll do is I'll go back and I'll replay a segment or two. Uh, you know, or in the case of something like Alien Isolation 3, uh, it would be something where I'm just returning to moments that were really memorable. Um, I've always preferred to do, and you know, it's becoming less of a feature uh, sometimes, but I would prefer to do something like that than like run a new game plus just because I want to get to those moments. Like Neil said, you know, I'm somebody yeah. that will watch uh, clips on YouTube from like my favorite scenes of uh, movies or something like that when I don't have time to revisit it. Yeah. And, you know, being able to do that with games was always a feature specifically of, you know, some older games uh, that I always really appreciated and, you know, letting me uh, kind of skim past maybe the imperfections or the sections of a game that <laughs> didn't uh, didn't sit at quite as well with me as the overall experience uh, was always a feature that I really appreciated. But uh, Ian, you, one of the games that you listed that you wanted to chat about was the Saw game, which I have never played. I've never seen a frame of. Tell us how they did it adapting Saw for a, uh, a game. Oh man, it's the saw game is like watching a chef come out of the kitchen with the most beautiful cake and it looks so good. You can smell it. It's fantastic. And then he drops it like two <laughs> tables away from you. Because I think it's a really good game that does a good job setting up the vibe. And it really does nail the vibe of the saw films. But its shortcoming comes in the fact that the all of the mechanics become very repetitive very quickly. And whereas saw prides itself on the like the quick wit and how tenacious the protagonist is to survive this. The video game really is a lot of like hit egg too slow, buddy reload the save oh, and try geez. again. <laughs> and that will 100% take you out of it every single time. And I still think it's a fun game because like, you know, I'm a crazy kid who was like, I'm going to see all the different ways you can die in Resident Evil four. Mm-hmm. And the saw games do bring a little bit of that. But unfortunately All of the cool visuals in the world won't do anything if the gameplay loop is repetitive and boring because it's a video game, man. It's not a movie. And it's it's unfortunately that they took something that probably would have been a good script for a movie or at least an entertaining saw film, and they padded it out with these repetitive mechanics and released a lackluster, technically survival horror, but like the thinnest (laughs) definition. (laughs) They released these lackluster survival horror games. I I see that they made a sequel, too. Saw two flesh yes. and blood. <laughs> yes, they did. God. No idea why, and I was dumb enough to think they'd improve <laughs> upon the first one. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about this was Konami being involved, you know, because they saw it as the successor to Silent Hill, which, yeah, <laughs> given the time the time period, makes a lot of sense uh, with uh, what Konami were doing. But uh, <laughs> it's got rust. It, we've got rust. It's got broken people. We've got broken people. <laughs> it's like. Hey, we don't have to keep paying the Silent Hill guy. Oh God, yeah. It's like, like I think I said at the time. Yeah, you know, when I covered it once in an article, so it, it is at its best when it evokes the spirit of Rockstar's Manhunt. Yeah, you know, it mm-hmm. kind of mirrors that dynamic really well. But yeah, the rest of it is just oof, no. <laughs> it's like uh, it, it is. I agree. It is just that kind of game where you're like, oh, for a minute there, there's something there. Even now, you know, that really connects and feels right about it. But it is just rough outlines of something that could have been great. Which I, I there are plenty of games I'm quite fond of in that regard. You know, and I think 
But I think just the sort of franchise in general for me is not really thing, something I'm fond of. You know, I, I've watched them. I, I enjoyed a couple, but not enough where I would think a video game for, worth of it really would be, you know, fun. To, <laughs> to, go, to go off of that, and it's not to say this specific example, but that's a potential I see of when they adapt these IPs into a game, right? These film IPs into game is that you have the ability to present something that could appeal to both fans of the franchise and people that perhaps have never even seen the movie, right? And that's where those creative liberties kind of come with, right? I would hope that, you know, if it's a half-baked effort from the jump, right? It's seen as a marketing thing where it's like, yeah, tie in, make some extra cash, then they're not going to have that inclination to be like, let's take some creative liberties with this IP and do something fun and original and creative. But, you know, for using that as an example, the Saw game, you know, imagine if they had delivered a Saw game that captures the feel of the movies and then someone such as yourself, Neil, that maybe isn't in love with the movies as much as, you know, hardcore fans are, could still appreciate it on a level perhaps that you don't for the uh, film themselves. Like, there is that potential. Yeah. Uh, even if devs well, want to return to certain IPs that perhaps 10, 20 years ago or 30 years ago for some of them, you know, bombed or weren't as successful as they could have been. There is that potential, though, to, you know, capitalize on that IP in a, in a new way that nobody would have conceived of, you know, when it was originally released. Yeah, I think when, like, when the game is at its best, it's because it echoes the film as well. You know the film series and and takes good ideas from that. It's when it deviates, like having combat is just in any form, way, shape, or form, is stupid. Yeah, you know, with, with this, it just doesn't make sense. This is very much supposed to be like, you know, the, the ethos of Saw is like, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, sort of thing. You know, and I'm gonna, but you're still gonna die, sort of thing. And not my fault, all yours. And there's not enough of that to it. Yeah, you know, there's not enough. To most of that, it's kind of not the fault of the developer. I think it's more of a case of just the time it was released. Games hadn't really got to that level. If you'd made a store game today, I guarantee you someone would do it more like that and make it more of a psychological thing. But yeah, it's just... Some of it is just so underwhelming when it deviates. I think I likened it to basically like bludgeoning... When you're bludgeoning someone, it feels more like you're slapping a sandbag with a pillow than anything. And it just... Is utterly unsatisfying. Imagine a Saw game with the interactivity of that game, the other side that we talked about uh, recently, where, Mm. you know, you have to, you know, you're looking, basically, I'm thinking about the bear trap, uh, the bear trap trap from Saw, where, you know, you're looking in the mirror, basically, and you have like a screwdriver and you have to perfectly, you know, pinpoint different points of articulation on that to unscrew or something like that, instead of, you know, the button mashing Mm. uh, disaster (laughs) that it sounds like that Ian was describing. (laughs) I actually, uh, I do have a pitch for you guys later when we get to that part for yeah. Saw. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Saw is something you could pitch a lot about because I think there's so many interesting ideas in there that really translate well. I think it's, yeah, just unfortunately, I think they were coerced into making it something else. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Yeah. Well, if I think it sounds like we're kind of ready to get to that pitch process. I don't know about you guys, but I had a few written down that I'm excited to share. You guys ready to move uh, yeah, on from, to that? Yeah, most yeah. certainly. I'm ready whenever you guys right, are. Well, you know, I think it would be a perfect starting place. Let's hear that uh, saw pitch, Ian. So I think I got one word, two letters that's going to elevate the saw game to where it needs to be. VR, my dudes. 
The idea of you put on your headset, all you can see, metal, scrap. Maybe you got a slit that you're seeing through in VR. The TV comes on. Let's play a game. And then with your physical hands, which are probably shaking because you're freaked out, you have to interact with this item on your head. And there's been lots of VR games that have done this. Things like, uh, I think it was called Static, a series of uh, levels where you did these portal-esque experiments with this box on your hands. Or I Think You Should Die, which has the player sitting in one seat the whole time, going through James Bond-like death traps. And I think of things like this and that interactivity and that fear, because you know it's easy when your heart's racing, pressing a button. (laughs) You know it's not easy when your heart's racing, putting your hand in a straight line one foot to the right without moving it too high up or low because you're the reverse bear trap will tear your head <laughs> off and that idea of like yeah 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 you need to actually move your hands around and keep them still like those things where you like operation where you can't touch the sides because mm-hmm. one wrong move and we're going to show you as close as we can what it would look like from your perspective to get your head ripped in half And that sounds like something that I would want to play that would accurately capture the feeling of something. How could anyone not want to play that after that amazingly enthusiastic pitch? (laughs) Hey, Lionsgate, that one's free. You just got to give me special thanks in the credits. So, you know, PSVR 2 is coming. I'm sure there's there's a whole film coming again. Why not? You know, have a promotional tie-in game. There you go. It's like, oh, damn it. I just remembered a game that I really liked. It was a tie-in game now. But there you go. We will. <laughs> so sorry, quick shout out just because you were talking about VR and I remembered it. But did you play the Exorcist VR game? I had not, but I heard only good things. Yeah, that's what I mean. That was a very good example of sort of expanding on a, a license, keeping the ideals of it, and uh, yeah, making it quite intimidating as a VR package. So yeah, when I think of VR horror, that's one of the very good examples of that and a licensed game to boot. Sorry. Let's get back onto something. No, I think that, uh, you know, Saw is a really smart pick for VR, right? Because, again, you want to talk about the fact of not only putting you in that chair or in that device, right? And the fact that you have the functionality of putting the player in the role of, you know, however many countless victims that series has had. um, And, you know, it being more about you physically interacting basically with, you know, the proximity to your body of where a trap would be, that would make something that, on the surface sounds very simplistic, have the intensity that, you know, Ian was talking about, especially when, you know, you have whatever the timer, or maybe you don't even know how much time there is, but you hear that stopwatch clicking in the background. Um, and I think that also, you know, it would help to put you in that disgusting, rusty room that, you know, 90% of those traps take place. And, uh, and of course, seeing your body get ripped apart in, fir- in first person VR would be, uh, you know, properly traumatic as it should be. No, absolutely. As long as there's like a bonus mode where you see the cameraman at points just sort of like flitting, teleporting about the room, doing quick cuts of you. <laughs> Neil, what about you? What is a uh, a game that you, or rather, excuse me, a horror film that you would love to see adapted into a game? I've got a few, but um, I know we mentioned Jaws already, but I would like a Jaws game based on the film Jaws that yeah, forgets all the stuff up until they actually go hunting for the shark. Yeah. And so and but have this text heavy adventure game. Yeah. Where you get different genre styles for like sailing and the hunting of the shark and like that. So you know you just you have to go along driving the boat and you have to do certain boat controls and then when you're not doing that you have to be to sort of um 
doing the sort of tracking work. And I think something similar to like GTA 5's you know, character switching, where you sort of go from one person to the next to the next, like that, and doing certain roles if you wish. And yeah, then just having this sort of story where you can sort of get used to the idea of these characters and get into them. I would sort of pitch it almost like a retelling, maybe, but not not doing exactly the same because then you know you know the outcome. Um, but yeah, just I love that whole hunt section of the film, you know, and just where it takes things, and I just love the idea of the terror of it, you know. So maybe um, you know most of it would be first person based, with like um, just maybe the conversation scenes on in the boat are like. You know, classic text adventure things with like, uh, you know, here's an image, here's the text of, here's your choices sort of thing. I think it would be, yeah, atmospheric in the right way, you know, and just uh, taking on more of the idea of Jaws than just the shark, you know, and just the human element that made it so special, you know. I think it would work really nicely. No, absolutely. I think especially with uh, bouncing between three points of perspective, because so much of that movie is these people running around trying to figure out the solution. And I think mm. putting the player into that and making them dictate how to spend their time, knowing that too much time with one person working on just the boat means not enough time warning townspeople. And that, uh, yeah. even just talking about that balance gave me a little bit of anxiety. So I think that'd be an excellent gameplay mechanic. <laughs> there need- Thank God I don't have to protect the town from sharks. <laughs> there needs to be a facet though of that, that plays like a simulator where you play the mayor and basically, you have to make sure that you deviate resources to like vacation season, but at the same time, like money to you know do cover ups for all the people getting eaten or misinformation about the beach being safe or whatnot. <laughs> There's plenty of people on Twitter with that experience, I'm sure. So, so. Well, my pitch would be for, and I tweeted about this recently, uh, would be for a new Predator game, but you take the Batman Arkham City framework and make that you know, the mm-hmm. framework for Ooh. a predator game where that basically is the hunting ground. Uh, I don't know how you would do it from a story perspective or a narrative perspective. Uh, but I think that that type of framework seems like a natural fit uh, for, you know, predator um, and it being an urban setting, right? Cause we saw that in, um, I believe it was called predator concrete jungle, which, you know, mm-hmm. had the, the, the premise or the promise of exploring the city, of course, you know, talk about limitations and whatnot. That was a little more linear if my memory uh, serves me correctly. But the idea of having an open world as the predator and, you know, hunting, uh, whether it be, you know, let's say maybe Xeno show up or maybe rival predator clans or just, you know, the uh, crime elements that are in the city. uh, That seems like kind of a natural fit for that character. Yeah, I I think the, the, the empowerment of it is very close to superhero film and superhero games where you like Arkham because the idea is I'm Batman and that's badass and I get to all these Batman things. So yeah, Predator's tool set is just like that in a lot of ways where it's like being stealthy, being silent, catching dumbasses unaware and just occasionally getting a challenge out of something. So yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic fit. So follow-up question. If I was sitting in the creative room, my first question would be, does it have to be a human city? Because I think it'd be a lot easier to write that story if we could drop them on an alien planet with maybe some pretty human-esque architecture and be mm-hmm. like, no, 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 this isn't like a hunting thing. It's more of a war thing. Take take it to the Dark Horse days. What if it was still Earth, but it was after the Zine... Um, I forget. I think it was the original Dark Horse Aliens comic series where basically 
They return to Earth with the xenomorphs that some general has convinced himself they've controlled, and they send them out, and then basically it just ravages the entire planet. What if it was a war zone planet similar to that? So you do have pockets of human resistance fighters, but then also, you know, the xeno hordes or even other predators there that are, you know, using it as a hunting ground. Hmm. That'd be awesome. Kind of like a, that'd be like a, like an inverse of uh, what Terminator resistance does, I suppose, you know, being like that. Um, I suppose the other thing actually I quite like if you you could do with that structure is have it almost be a hitman esque structure where you know you can go to different planets, different places. You you have your targets. You can sandbox it. You can do things differently. You can have different. You know you can get rewarded for playing out different ways and hunting things in different ways. You know obviously without the penalties of hitman, uh, so to speak, um, in terms of just murdering whoever the hell you want, but. You know, there has to be like a primary target, like a, an alpha target that you must get that will get you the respect you deserve. So if I were to do that, my idea would be basically you'd be like this dishonored predator that has, you know, you know it's been shamed into, you know, oh, well, you can't get back into our ranks unless you complete the set of challenges sort of thing like that. And so each of the maps is, you know, their journey to redemption, if you will, you know, taking out these high level targets of, you know, that, that would make the other predators respect them because they have that mm. kind of culture. Yeah. We've seen that in the films, you know, that where they are, you know, they, they will just basically bully each other for being shit at their job. So it, yeah, it would be not? cool to see something akin to the nemesis system from the uh, shadows of Mordor games too in there, right? Where you have these targets that, yeah. you know, are going to require more, perhaps it's observation or research into, you know, their fighting styles or, this or that. And it's a target that initially you set out to want to kill. But then, of course, you know, you're going to come across less, less alpha creatures or whatever that you want to hunt. And so you have to build up to those big targets, whether that be, yeah. you know, leveling or just in general, you know, acquiring the correct uh, uh, resources and weapons and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. It is one of those. IPs that are just perfect for so many this things. This is the danger of hyping ourselves up about games that we probably won't get or won't get for a very long time. Um, yeah. I know, but yeah, yeah. it's exciting all the same. <laughs> the idea is for you guys. Just put us in the special things. Exactly. Okay. exactly. <laughs> so based on an idea, like, and that's all we need. So. Uh, Ian, I'd love to hear another one of your pitches. So I talked about it a little earlier with Zombie on the ZX Spectrum, but I think Dawn of the Dead, or specifically Romero's Dead Universe, really needs a proper adaptation because I think that the, the technology's there to create those truly grisly worlds that feel lived in. But also, I think games like Project Zomboid have showed that people are willing to play uh, something that's less of a game and more of like a simulation, you know? Because of Project Zomboid, there's no goal. And I love that game, despite the fact that I've never survived more than two weeks. And I think a Romero-licensed game that brought in the locations and maybe if you like cobble together a town from all the locations of the games and just lets players loose to survive a zombie apocalypse, you can sprinkle in some world events similar to things that happen in the games, you know? You can have the... You can have the uh, motorcycle gang from Dawn of the Dead. You can have the classism issues with Land of the Dead. We can entirely ignore Diary of the Dead. It never happened. And we can create this fantastic film that pays legacy to these great actors who created these lasting, um, you know, performances and also to the world of George Romero. Rest in peace. Please stay dead. (laughs) 
yeah, as long as you get Ken Forey in there, I, I'm definitely game for that. It's um, but yeah, I think that you're very right about um, Project Zomboid. You know, I think ironically that's probably one of the most listened to episodes that we've had. You know, on this show was about that game and talking about our you know, sort of organic experiences in that game. Um, and it's why I love it. You know, I think it's great because of that. You know, because it does just give you your own sort of Dawn of the Dead era zombie experience. And I, I'm so there for that. I, it feels like a dragon I've been chasing, you know, in terms of games where that really get it, you know, they really understand what it is that made zombies such a, an interesting subject matter and, and the end of the world and surviving in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, most people would generally, you think, find it boring to just sort of squat in a house for a night because, you know, for hours on end, literally in some cases, because <laughs> going outside is death. But you, you really want to see if you can make it a little bit further this time. Or, you know, like wandering through a forest for like a day solid, you know, slowly dying, slowly <laughs> dehydrating yeah. and thinking this is technically a waste of my time. But at the same time, I'm hopeful of something at the other end. And when you do find something, it's like salvation but the knowledge that it's not enough that you, you've spent a lot of your existing life you know <laughs> trying to get this far and just the nature of what it does in giving you that these little moments that have consequences just these tiny decisions that feel so in keeping with Romero's world mm-hmm. that yeah it is the perfect sort of template for making a Romero sort of game you know and I think yeah, it would be no doubt something that would benefit from actually having multiplayer like Zomboid does, mm-hmm. where you know having people occasionally sort of crop up here and there makes perfect sense. But it, but it works there because it's isolated. You know, you don't have to ever meet a person, and yeah, it, it would be wonderful. No, yeah, I uh, wholeheartedly love Project Zomboid, but even if it is a one hundred percent waste of my time, like nothing of value comes from playing that game. <laughs> I think my favorite death in the entirety of my time with that game is I I pulled off the most daring escape. I felt so cool. I was on the run. I was out of there. And then my guy got sick. And I was like, no, I must have gotten bitten somewhere. What happened? <laughs> and I realized what had happened was I cut my leg jumping out of a window because I didn't clear all the glass. And then it got infected and I died. And I was just like, well, I wanted a simulation. That's what I got. <laughs> Yeah, I like it because it reminds me of those moments in stuff like Dawn of the Dead, like, you know, where it was just like they do things, they just take things a little bit too far and get caught out like that. And Mm -hmm. it really just feels like the proper doom of it all, where it's like one little moment of overconfidence can just cost you so badly. Absolutely. One shopping day at the mall gets all your friends (laughs) killed. Well, a game like Project Zomboid, I think, is a great example of like anecdotal storytelling right because there's no real narrative of that game but you're making stories mm-hmm. with every life like everybody has a story mm. just like uh, ian's that was like my first experience right is that i jumped into the neil suggested we cover it i didn't really have a great understanding of what it was and then i was going to try to play it like i would any other type of zombie survival game and then yeah i bled out in like a convenience store or something and i was just like Wait a second. And then thinking about all of the different layers of complexity to that, you know, it it makes it challenging in a way that, you know, yes, you have to worry about all those things. But 
also it's a game that I find is really rewarding because in every death something is learned, right? And you're going to die a mm-hmm, lot. Yeah. Um, and to give the player the freedom with which to explore those types of mechanics um, and not, you know, tell them right from the outset. Um, it, it's a rarity now in game design. You know, I'm not somebody that's super into hardcore experiences, but I find that there is something about that sort of lack of handholding um, that I find, yeah. you know, I wish more games had a degree of that, right? Maybe not as hardcore as having to worry about cleaning glass off of windowsills, but mm-hmm. at the same time, something that really does channel what makes those classic zombie films, specifically Romero's Dead Trilogy, um, that remarkable or that standout, I suppose, from other types of zombie media, which maybe didn't all have the same goal that he did with his films. But at the same time, his films capitalized on something that I suppose not a great deal of zombie films did at the time and some to this day still don't. Um, no, yeah. it, he's got a directness that is somehow more subtle. Yeah, it, it, it's weird to put, but yeah, it really does just get to the point of the matter in a way that isn't like shouting in your face about man is the real evil sort of thing. You know, it's, it, it's implied, you know, and yeah, anything else really does just feel like a pale imitation of that because how could it not? So I had a pitch for a scream game that would be in the, and while I'm going to mention a developer, I don't necessarily know they would be a great fit for it, uh, tonally speaking, but Uh, A scream game done in the style of a telltale adventure game where you're navigating a friend circle or, you know, a group of acquaintances and trying to suss out who the killer is amongst whether, of course, it could be dependent on whether or not it's, you know, students or depending on the age group, uh, it could be people that are just in a general group of friends or something along those lines. But, you know, I thought that that would be a cool sort of use of that IP that, you know, could be inundated with moments of, you know, uh, Ghostface showing up and having to try to avoid him, which would probably be reduced to like quick time events, unfortunately, with that format. But, you know, if you have a developer that knows how to write really unique or quirky characters, um, could have a lot of fun maybe with a variety of personalities that captures sort of like the werewolves within approach to like trying to suss out who the killer is. Um, I think that while that maybe sounds like an oversimplification. Um, at the same time, I think if you had a developer that really had some stellar writing, um, that could be a way that they could adapt Scream into a, uh, a game. Yeah. I mean, the other obvious sort of nod here is Supermassive Games, isn't it? Yep. When you're thinking about that sort of thing. I mean, I used to think this about Scream, if I ever wanted to see a game, it would be like that. You know, like what, Supermassive ended up doing with stuff like Until Dawn, where you would just have, you know, oh, here's a slasher, you know, it's a killer, you, what you do depends on how the story. And actually, the recent game they put out, The Dark Pictures, The Devil in Me, is very much to me the closest they can come to that, really nailing that feel of like a slasher more than The Quarry did, I think, which goes a little too supernatural for my liking. But, you know, The Devil in Me is you know, a slasher, it's a serial killer, it's like this, you know, and there's traps in the wall and all this stuff. And it nails it perfectly, I think. You know, it's like, it feels like you are building your own story in a way that it never did before. You know, and the kills are grisly and the choices are there. And I suppose, if anything, actually, it's probably the perfect hybrid of Scream and Saw 
in the terms of like it's never shifting house it's got its own traps that have moral implications and it has you know a literal serial killer in there trying to beat the serial killer record if you will and yeah i i, I think they would be my pick if you if you're, i think that I mean, it's not like I'm being unique here in saying that. I think there are a lot of people out there who say that. And I would say the only thing with Telltale now is they aren't the Telltale that were there before. So if you're going to go big budget and with a name like Scream, I think you would get you know top dollar there, wouldn't you? You know, if you had Supermassive doing a Scream game. Yeah, it would good. It would do the big numbers. So it's funny you say that. I actually had also written down one of those, but I think a Nightmare on Elm Street would be a really good fit for a super massive game, mm. specifically because I think in Nightmare on Elm Street, the protagonists always display a little more wit and cunning than typical slasher protagonists do. Yes. and I think that would translate really well to the on-the-fly decision making required in those games, especially with the whole branching narratives and such. Uh, I think Nightmare on Elm Street is the perfect like story for you know this this person's a psychologist and they know something that's going to help someone else and if you can manage to have them both survive to the end you'll get the best ending type of gameplay loop yeah and i think the uncertainty that that brings as well because of the dream world logic that comes into it Mm -hmm. means that you know your interpretation of it can lead you down the wrong path you know quite easily which i think you want to do in a choice-based system is have something that you may have good intentions going down a path thinking, well, if I do this, this is the right thing to do, but it doesn't have to be, you know, it, it can have consequences, you know, and I think that, yeah, that, that is a really good license for that too. It's actually one that suddenly popped into my head actually as we were talking about this, but I kind of had fleeting thoughts of before. So when I played uh, Sambalo's uh, half moment it's um, immortality uh, you know I had this idea of like scrubbing through footage of films like that that were lost to the past you know the first thing that came to mind as a horror thing the Blair Witch Project so I thought wouldn't it be cool to have a Blair Witch Project style game of found footage where you are basically the person in charge of organising that found footage and having it somehow and this is where you know, my my praise of Blair Witch 2, Book of Shadows, kind of comes into it earlier, is that it then starts kind of affecting what you're doing, you know, in the moment. You know, it starts influencing you and uh, really corrupts you, you know. And um, so I suppose it was somewhere between, like, The Ring and, and that, you know, in that it's a malevolent video. But I really like the idea of that, that you would just have like all these hours and hours of footage, some of it that doesn't really matter, some of it that you could just leave on the cutting room floor. But you could sort of piece things together to tell the story how you see it and then also have the trouble of dealing with that story in your own life at the same time. See, I think I've always wanted a Blair Witch game like that. It, it, it really dealt with what the original film dealt with, you know, in, in found footage. And considering there are so many games out there that deal in the idea of found footage, and, you know, and especially in the indie space, it, it just feels like a perfect thing to do. Developer-wise, I don't know, but I, I would actually, this is one of the things that 
if it's not an indie de- developer necessarily, I could see you know, going down the FMV route and just having like actual footage of actual actors and it would be some undertaking, obviously, to get that all done because no doubt that was the case for Immortality. But, God, I would be that game's biggest champion, I guarantee you. Yeah, I think my main fear with something like that would be, even though I would totally love to see something like that, is that perhaps a developer that is not as well-versed in horror would perhaps find that they could too heavily lean on jump scares, hiding ghosts in specific frames or, you know, stuff like that, which, you know, I think a lot of developers perhaps would uh, think like, oh, yeah, you know, we'll just when they reanalyze something, they'll have this big jump scare moment or like how many times are you going to find a shadow in a frame that you didn't see the first time or something. But <laughs> to be fair, I think that that framework is the next natural step, right? Especially when going off of, mm-hmm. you know, immortality and seeing how well they were able to tell a story through several different decades, right? Who's to say you can't mm-hmm. do that with a ghost story and just finding a balance between occasionally having maybe traditional scares in there with overall a story that is, you know, telling a tale of a haunting or something. Um, and also the fact that, yeah. you know, capitalizing on the player themselves being somebody that is, you know, analyzing this haunted footage, um, I think could really play well um, and make for something that would be unlike a lot of other FMV games that we've played. Yeah. And I think you can also just take from that multiple time period thing, like you said, where you can have footage that, lines up you know from you know anecdotes from people in the town blah blah, blah. like like the Blair Witch Project does where you know they, they take anecdotes and things like that and add things together and and sort of build a picture I suppose the problem there is that you are then kind of without the element of surprise if you directly ad- adapted mm-hmm. that but I don't think you would directly adapt it I think you would tell a new story it ideally that would be the proper sequel that Wingard's sort of Blair Witch wasn't, you know, it, it would be the one that feels most comfortable. It would be the evolution of where we have come to, you know, where, okay, so we showed you what we put together. Now it's up to you. Here's the footage. You you put together the story of what happened in this particular tale, because, you know, that can't be the last time that happened sort of thing. Yeah. You know, it's like, and that's why I like Book of Shadows in some ways it is that it does kind of just sort of say you know here's people obsessed about what that film did now getting a taste of their own medicine so to speak in, in trying to divulge into it so yeah what that, you what you described reminded me so much of a game and i'm trying so hard to remember the title it was an FMV game where you would type questions into a text bar and they would respond to you based off of what you had typed. Hmm. Does that ring any bells to either? Is it recent or is it? Oh, God. Within the past five years. I was think. it untold stories? Oh, God. Where you're typing them into a computer? Stories untold, rather, from no code? Ah, so that's <laughs> that's one. The one I'm thinking of specifically was about a detective and there was another one about a therapist. Oh, that's from where these are Wales interactive games, aren't they? Isn't that the Dr. Decker game? That sounds right. The Infectious Madness of Dr. Decker. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, that that's one of Wales Interactive's games who made uh I think stuff like the bunker, late shift, or last shift or whatever it is, and things like that. They they made a whole bunch of stuff that is quite interesting in the F and V mode. But yeah, that that is a 
a good one. In that sort but yeah, of I think that idea has definitely got legs, though. If I uh, if I had if I was in the game meeting room and I was to pitch an idea, so you're going through all these like you're going through all these tapes, right? It's an active yeah. investigation. As you're going through these tapes, you're making observations, you're noting it in your in-game piece of paper. Maybe after you complete seventy percent of the observations. Hey, hey, Roger, I just got back from the crime scene. They found another box of tapes. You need to start looking through these, too. Maybe some of yeah. the new tapes you find are offering alternative perspectives on the events of the first tapes. Maybe that little bit of a shadow you saw the first time that unnerved you a little, you can see now it's a whole ass freaky witch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. I think It's got legs. I think Wales Interactive, if you're going the, the more independent yeah. route, wouldn't be a bad shout for that. Like, even when stuff hasn't been perfect, they've made stuff that kind of is memorable in its own way, especially in that sort of FMV thing. I'll take interesting over perfect most days. Yeah. 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 I mean, like that. And then I think, you know, to this day, the Blair Witch Project is very much in people's minds as being that. When anyone comes to that new, because so much has happened since then, it kind of feels odd. Now, because it's deviated from so much in other films, but yeah, it, I think it is that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They were literally talking about that at my work yesterday, and I had to remind them that it feels hokey and cheesy now. But when it came out, there was an actual court hearing where they had to bring them out to prove that they weren't dead because it was that convincing. <laughs> so it's really easy twenty something years later to be like, "Yeah, it's a dumb movie," but back then people were freaking out. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think to this day it still has something about it that just that no found footage film really has done the same way. You know, um, it, it just has a magic to it that really feels real. And I think most of it comes down to the, with the people in it. You don't really know them in anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, nothing about it. No one really got famous off that when you think about it. And that has kind of preserved its legacy. The imperfections do so much in capitalizing on the authentic, giving it the authenticity that you would want something like that to have. And, you know, to that point yeah. as well, right? I mean, that I couldn't even tell you what a single name of somebody that was in that movie was, or if they did anything after that, you know, granted, I know that, but it, you wouldn't know their body of work from their name, let alone recognize their name. And so there is that sort of timeless quality that time capsule quality to it where it's like oh this just feels like something that was found in a field that should never have been found because nobody in it is recognizable whereas when you watch some found footage films specifically american ones and you see somebody in it that you recognize it for me it takes me out of it right you know i've of course been able to enjoy them yeah. on some level but at the same time like there is a quality and i would attribute it more so to like foreign found footage films where it's filled with actors and actresses that i'm not familiar with there is a layer of authenticity there where I said, well, this is just a normal person to me. I know they're an actor, of course, but I don't have that brain na- that brand name recognition with them. So this just kind of fulfills that feeling of like, this is a tape somebody found that, judging by the contents, probably should have been destroyed and yet was not. Yeah. It's why, while Cloverfield, for instance, is a fine film in its own right, you can't really view it as being that same way as other found footage right. films. Mm-hmm. Because T.J. Miller is in yeah. it. So, it's like, and it's like, and he's so synonymous with being an utter shit now that it's like, you, you can't not connect the two dots, you know. Uh, but yeah, and J.J. Abrams. So, but yeah, sorry, 
deviation. But um, yeah, that that would be wonderful in, in my eyes. Found footage that I mean, I think we discussed this a little bit um, when we were talking on a horror whites episode about that game that was like uh, the film as above, yeah. so below. catacombs i think it was called uh, uh, the catacombs yeah the catacombs and you know i love that it kind of got the essence of that film perfectly right whilst being mm. its own thing yeah you know, and i love that and that was to me proof that you can do something that feels like a horror film without necessarily being that mm. horror film yeah, you know, so, so as much as we are here talking about dream licenses, sometimes you can just sort of take those ideas and just run with it your own way. I mean, let's be honest, most of the indie horror genres that have come out of the last decade, 15 years or so, have stemmed from stuff like Blair Witch Project. You know, Slender, Slenderman, that sort of stuff have all come from that idea in, in their own way. They are just sort of creepypasta evolutions of mm-hmm. that. And, you know, no shame in it. Not at all. I, I think, no, yeah, but, you know, it's... So on that note, you, uh, like, you, you look at indie devs like Jordan Black from Black Eyed Priest Games, who recently put mm. out uh, Night at the Gates of Hell. You mm. ask that guy, and he will straight up be like, yeah, these are the four films that directly influenced this. I think recently on Twitter, he literally broke down every game in his career and the films yeah. that influenced it. So, hey, man, yeah. wear it on your sleeve. Those games rule. Who am I to judge? Yeah, I mean that when we did an episode on Knights of the Gates of Hell, that was the thing that was so great for me. I was so enthusiastic that he pointed out the reference points because not only was I then going into it thinking, well, now I'm intrigued. You know, I want to see because you know when he references stuff like Fulci and those sort of European zombie movies, straight away I was like, okay, I like that. So please be like that. And then when it was. And it really did just capture that essence. I was like, wow, yes, give me that. I, I am for it. And, you know, it had to be an episode then because it was like, uh, how could it not be? I, you know, it was my interests just being meshed together. Yeah, I think that it's always indicative of a creative that's willing to, you know, basically lay out, such as he did, his inspiration, right? Because the final product clearly is taking elements that they find within certain films to resonate with them and their interests and their likes, whether that be horror or just directorial or otherwise, and yet they're still able to deliver a product that feels like very much their own and their own style, right? I think that that's the biggest thing is that a true creative is able to very, you know, point blank say, look at these three, four films, these are where I draw my influence from, and yet the final product doesn't just feel like it's kind of grabbing elements from a certain film and that's the end of it right it feels very wholly unique to that developer and their sensibilities um and that you know that's why yeah. when i think I, about adapting certain ips and it's the same with like remakes of uh horror films i'm not incredibly precious about the authenticity aspect of what they're doing just because i'm more interested in seeing what they can do creatively with that you know sandbox that's been established or the elements of that ip that are already established I'm not incredibly worried about whether or not, you know, within, let's say they make an Evil Dead single player game. Am I incredibly worried about whether or not they're going to do a take on Ash or something that is different than the films? Personally, I'm not, because if they're able to take core elements or themes of those movies, that core trilogy of films, and deliver something that feels like a wholly unique and fresh and original story for Ash, 
that's what I'm more concerned with. I'm not incredible because if they deliver something that's a little bit different than what was in the films, I'll just go back and watch the movies if I want that experience. Whereas I'd rather see how somebody can evolve on an IP in a creative way rather than just giving me more of what you would expect from the films. Yeah. I mean, even though it's actually a good example of like, you have that freedom because it's a franchise that never stays the same. You know, it's like the, the mean spirit, uh, grunginess of the first film to the slightly more studio, studio nature of the second one. And then the full on, you know, comedy of the third and then the TV series. And then the remake is just nihilistic, you know, nastiness. <laughs> you know, it, it's, you know, it's got so many layers, you know, so you can just take it in any direction, you know, Admittedly, the next direction that franchise is taking is copying demons too, but you know, it is still <laughs> different. <laughs> I will never give that up, by the way. It's like, it's like it, you know, it, it is demons too, but um, yeah, it deserves to have that. You know, it deserves to have that sort of um, variety, and the fact that it is such a sustained sort of idea all these years later. When I think of horror game franchises, you know, based on like, the horror game license itself rather than any outside license, you think of Silent Hill where it got to the point where those first three games have kind of sort of got ideas of mushed together over time where to the casual observer, they're all the same thing. You know, there are bits of each that have appeared here, there and everywhere. And I think not helped perhaps by Christoph Gans's film, you know, which really does just sort of cherry pick bits and bobs, mm. you know. But yeah, um, I, I think you know the, the fact that you can't really easily get hold of Silent, the original Silent Hill, the not great versions of the other two games, has meant that there's this sort of encapsulated idea of what that franchise is comes from those three games. Everything else after that is kind of sort of washed away, and they are sort of like this time capsule that never was. Yeah, and yeah, it's interesting, uh, and that's where all the ideas come from. To the to date, you know, where Christoph Gans is out there, sort of doing sort of bridge fingers, going, "It's like I'll do what the fuck I want." And the pyramid head, he can come back again. Who cares? It's like it's like yeah, that. It's fine. It works. So, At least when Pyramid Head comes back this time, it'll make sense for the story. Right. I mean, yeah, it was like it's like, but I just love the way he put it. Like it was like basically like. Yeah, no, no, we're going to do it right this time, as if he wasn't the reason it was wrong last time. <laughs> no, wait, I will say, I'll, I'll give that guy, like, that guy gets all the passes in my book, because uh, as a Resident <laughs> Evil fan, we know how much worse it could have been. Exactly. Oh, as I mean, I love how we he's get along so, so well. brazen with that. <laughs> yeah, is it? He's so brazen with it. And I, and I think that's that's the perfect sort of thing you want for a director. Someone who knows what they're doing, understands what they're working with, but also says, fuck it, this is my way. It's like, you know, it's like, if I want Pyramid Head in this film, who cares? It's like, it's like, if I want the protagonist from the first game, who cares? Like that, <laughs> yeah. it's like, it doesn't matter. It's like, that's what always killed they, me was just the whole insistence that, no, it needs to be a woman in the film because no dad would ever care enough about the kid <laughs> to go through that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was like, and so that to me is just Im immediately funny that, you know, Here's another film by Christopher Gans in the Silent Hill universe that is Silent Hill 2 that completely nullifies what he did in the first film. 
that you made, but been long enough. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's like, and like I said, it's been long enough in terms of when the mm. games were really sort of relevant to the majority of people that it can yeah. shrug the shoulders. And now, in much the same way that you do get with a lot of remakes, um, Bluebeteen's remake will basically end up readjusting the opinion of a lot of people, you know, and of what that franchise is and will do. And given this, we'll end up sort of tying in. Of course, you know, it's going to be this um, tied together thing. That's what Konami are going for. They're going for the universe mode thing. And fine. Yeah, it's fine. I think do what you want with Silent Hill 2. You've got so much more beyond that. It'll all work. God, we are going on a little tangent here again. <laughs> no, the final pitch I had was, and while this is technically horror adjacent, I think, you know, we've gone into this so many times. Yeah, horror is what it is. So something that's interested me in the last few years is what has happened with the Battle Royale genre. Yeah. And how it kind of robs the idea of Battle Royale, the film and the book before that, of what it was about, you know, it makes it this fun thing, you know, it ironically makes it this dystopian game show version of what it should be. It's like the running man version of what it should be. And what I would like is a narrative driven single player game in the Battle Royale universe that really sort of goes into that that sort of takes back the idea of it being this fun sort of player v player thing and sort of adds this sort of connection between you and the people you're with in this hellish situation. You know, take it back to being about a bunch of schoolmates, you know, being pitted against each other or an island of death. And by doing it as a single-player sort of narrative adventure is that you could you know the preamble is there that you can do where you can interact with your your schoolmates um before it all happens and have all these connections and stories and relationships and really build connections with people and then go into the idea of like well now you've got to fucking kill each other that's so fucked up yeah it's like and so does that that would take back the idea of what Battle Royale should be about. The idea is like, we didn't have any choice in this. It, it, you know, the government is basically saying, this is how we solved our problems. It's like, make kids go on a fucking game show and look how it actually is and how it actually feels. You know? And it would be, to me, I think it would just be the perfect way of sort of claiming that, like reclaiming that, you know, and making it a thing that is an abject horror, you know, that you would ever be put in this situation and have no choice over it. You wouldn't be choosing to be in this situation. You would be given it. And, yeah, I think that preamble is so important if it were to be done because you need to have that connection with the people you're with, you know, and to know that you're going to be up against people that you like, maybe, and... I don't know who would do it, you know, in developer terms, but I think something that would um, offer up maybe a different path each time you do something would be interesting. Um, 
but yeah, the idea that you would you could come up against people that you might like the idea of and then have to kill them. It's worked in looser terms. So yeah, I think we've a really good story behind it. You could really... I mean, the book, especially, is so good at sort of telling the backstories of these people, you know, the people in the class and why you should care about them, that you know at some point you're going to get a conflict of interest where it's like... I really like this person and that person and that person. And here we are in a flashpoint where all three of those people are going, one of them's going to have to die at least. You know, it's like, you don't want that. You know, and in gaming terms, that is one of the easiest things to get across. If you want to get emotional impact is make people make a choice, but make it fucking difficult. <laughs> and, and that, what better choice would you get than to be in a game of death with people you've come to love that would be so awesome the idea of like uh you know two dozen independent ai moving around an island you know maybe with each playthrough you randomly generate which sections go off when mm -hmm. the idea that like on your first playthrough you could be best friends with the science kid then on your second playthrough he just gets murdered by the jock before you even get to him yeah i think there's a lot of really cool ideas to be explored well, there that would create yeah. those that sort of like nemesis idea right is that maybe in that scenario right you befriend somebody the first time you guys end up surviving the second time you try to befriend them early on again and then they're the first to get killed. All of a sudden now you have somebody that in the back of your mind, you're like, if I get the chance, I'm going to drop that motherfucker. And like that creates that kind of antagonistic relationship with the character that perhaps you've never even interacted with in that maybe let's say that early mm -hmm. hour, two hours where it's all about the relationship and the context. And then, you know, it gets to be that you have your crosshairs on that guy and he gives a bit of dialogue and basically Maybe he is this sadistic piece of shit that killed your buddy, or maybe you weren't there for that interaction where he killed that guy. Maybe it was just a life and death situation like everybody else on the island is. Yeah. And then the player has to you know, deal with that moral uh, conundrum of like, what do you do in that moment? Do you enact revenge or do you sympathize because this is somebody that is you know, a byproduct of this horrific situation that all these kids are in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think weirdly, you know, I would like it to... If, if I'm thinking of something modern, I think of uh, Obsidian's Pentiment, where you have a choice system which is quite benign in so many ways, but it can have an impact that lasts for years, you know, in that game. And you feel the consequence of it, maybe not on like a really high level, but like you suddenly realize that, oh, shit, that was the wrong thing to say in the wrong situation. And, you know, that got that person killed or that person in trouble and you know that kind of system would work better than just the, the be all and end all of like let this person live let this person die it doesn't have to be about that it's like you know inaction can be as much of a, a problem as action so yeah let it be this sort of multifaceted thing it would be very difficult to do i admit but, you know to really make it work but boy what you know what Battle Royale is in gaming is very much what we've been talking about, you know, with um, asymmetrical horror is that, you know, it's a great idea. Sure. But, you know, there are teams at the top doing that job who you're not going to beat. So do something different. Find a different way to address that, you know, to attack that 
genre. And attack this genre in a single-player manner that is very narrative-driven is the best way forward. This is why I was saying earlier about it's great that, you know, Ghostbusters Spirits Unleashed has that a bit. You know, where they are starting to think, oh, no, let's do a bit of story stuff. Let's not ensure that you have to have other people with you the whole time. You know, make sure that there is something for people who don't give a shit about other people online. You know, that is great. I don't think you need to have any multiplayer aspect in that. I think a big part of what would make this this great rebellion against what Battle Royale has become is in making it single player. You know, in making it about caring about the people you're fighting because you can't do that in multiplayer. There's too many variables and let's face it, most people you face online are going to be shitheads to you if they're ever going to talk to you. So... Well, also, there's no finality, you know? Once you, you kill your buddy and then the round ends and you're like, good kill, let's do another. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah, you you cannot get past that. I think you'd have to be a very, very smart developer to find a way to integrate that. You know, and I mean, if anyone ever did, that'd be amazing. I think that'd be... But... Shigeru Miyamoto, step up to bat, your time has come. <laughs> I, I just think, yeah, it, it wouldn't happen because there are too many different types of people out there that, that wouldn't really connect with that. So yeah, it kind of has to be AI. Mm-hmm. It kind of has to be something like that. No, but wholeheartedly. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. It, well, it falls back to what I was saying about asymmetrical multiplayer earlier, you know, because any real tension in that moment is going to be gone the moment some guy's like, Fuck you, you loser. I bet you suck. I bet you live in your mom's basement. And it's like, okay. I'm pretty sure if we were actually stuck on an island, those wouldn't be your last words, but whatever. <laughs> a little bit immersion breaking. I want to film like that now. Yeah, I want to film like that now. That's just, just shit talking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I would. Uh, dear. Uh, so for my last pitch, I want to ask, can I throw two at you really quick? Yeah, go for it. So the first one... Tim Schafer, Double Fine, need to make a Dead Rising-styled game based off of Peter Jackson's Brain Dead or Dead Alive, depending on the territory. Oh, yes. I think the the world, the characters, and the brutality of that game is a perfect fit for something like Dead Rising. You've got an interesting cast full of characters who are not afraid to get absolutely silly disgusting with the way that they dispatch zombies. You've got variety in enemies with the way that different people are affected by the Sumitran Rat Monkey. And the whole thing, I think the the weird humor that Peter Jackson brought to it is a perfect fit for Double Fun Studios. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, again, one of those directors where his early work is people have tried to replicate and it, it just doesn't feel right. There, there is something very distinct about early Peter Jackson. And yeah, and Brain Dead Dead Life is very much one of those where I'm just, oh God, I, I absolutely adored it. When it, when I first got to see it, which again was in that early sort of period of being really into zombie stuff, and it appearing on TV as one of those oh god, this is one of those shocking films that you, we couldn't show on TV before, but here we are showing it like that for the first time that Mark Kermo did so well, and yeah, it it is perfect as this sort of slapstick comedy horror sort of ideal would work as a game. You know, I think it's an underrated part of horror, I think, is doing, you know, the correlation between comedy and horror and how overlooked they are in terms of, like, recognition, Mm -hmm. in terms of, like, film. You know, 
it kind of works the same in games in some ways, but horror actually kind of makes them money. Uh, comedy in games, you know, <laughs> it's um, very hit Horror miss. comedies in general, <laughs> they dance such a fine line between the two genres that they're dabbling in that, you mm. know, if you have one half of the film that leans too heavily into one or the other, then the entire thing can kind of fall apart. And that's why Brain Dead, you know, is an example of a movie that, you know, is able to walk that line because you have not only his very silly sensibilities with the humor side of things, but, you know, and especially, you know, thinking about that, how the film ends, but throughout the film, there's that attention to, you know, that over the top practical effects and the gore and mm. everything that, you know, for, personally for me, like horror comedies, I'm so split on because generally I find them to be too funny, but then they lose some of that horror aspect or the vice versa for me, you know, it's a personal gripe of mine, but I mean, that's why that film stands out because it walks that line, in my opinion, perfectly in a way that so few films that set out to do something similar just don't. Well, yeah, I think so in game terms, I think what you want to look for in making the perfect sort of casserole here is stuff like Dead Rising you know, I feel like we're talking about where yes, there's a horror element to it and it can be horror incarnate, you know, in terms of like scaring you and making you worry and being anxious, but also just in terms of like repulsiveness. Right, exactly. I mean, I think, I think the big problem that gets uh, hit on with a uh, horror comedy is that something has to be scary because it's horror which no. is not true we know this it's like you don't have to be scary to be horror it's not about scaring you it's about mm-hmm. unnerving you it's about grossing mm-hmm. you out it's about you know titillating you with things that shouldn't really be regarded as being things you should be titillated by you know and you know dead rising and dead alive brain dead get this exactly right you know the absurdity of ultra violence you know and you know this year we've had that with terrified too yeah <laughs> where you have a, a film that is very much like very very much into the idea of like this is vicious this is mean but also it's fucking buster keaton you know, you know okay. terrifier too is pretty effective man i can't even salt my food anymore <laughs> <laughs> i've all but I mean, stricken that, that mashed really potatoes from my diet <laughs> I can't look at mashed potato without laughing to be fair. So it's like it's uh but yeah, that's what I mean. It's like it's taking something that is so extreme and in most people who don't really dabble in horror, you know, beyond the obvious, that is gonna be really like repulsive. You know, it, but to me or you guys, it's like you look at that mashed potato scene or you look at the the punchline of like torturing someone to the point of extremity and then coming back and literally literally rubbing salt in someone's wounds is just it's a joke it's comedy and that's why i'm saying comedy and horror exist on the same plane you know, it's like they kind of have to work harder to impress than say a drama where you can literally just fucking tug on your nipples to make yourself cry and and get a fucking oscar you know it's like you, know, you can do so much harder work in a horror or comedy and not get the same recognition it's unfair the the last thing i'll say is think about how rarely we talk you know on this podcast right how often do we highlight a game for how scary it is no we talk about the elements that are most indicative of horror 
but it's very rarely along the lines of like, let's run through the five scariest moments of this game, right? We don't have conversations like that because that's disingenuous to the overall effect and quality and, you know, the, um, I suppose, horror in general is so much more than that. And that's always what we're trying to dispel, I think, whether or not we set out to do that is that horror is not just about being scared. And, you know, I would like to think, not to give us too much credit, we get to the root of that without this is the scene that scared me the most. This is the scene that kept me up at night. Like we avoid those types of conversations because there's so much more to horror, whether it's, you know, games here or, yeah. you know, when we yeah. talk about film and whatnot. Um, but Ian, I would love to talk about your last pitch uh, before we wrap up. So this last one I won't go into detail too much, but all I got to say is that David Cronenberg really needs to make a point and click adventure. Yes. Because the world he creates and the situation he puts his protagonists in would be so interesting to have to experience yourself in a point-and-click adventure. And specifically, when I thought of this prompt, I was thinking about Videodrome and how I, as a player, would feel if I'm playing this this point-and-click adventure. I'm pointing, I'm clicking, I'm seeing an adventure, and then all of a sudden the game's like, hey, it's a weird gun hand you got. What if you stuck it into your stomach? See what that does. Those moments, I think, are perfect. That... That feeling of hovering over a prompt and it's like stick gun hand into stomach (laughs) would make my guts churn in a way that I think only David Cronenberg could make a point and click horror game do that. Yeah, that is a good, good shout. And I can kind of, it's nowhere near the same, okay, but if I could put a modern reference point in terms of like that sort of gothic feel uh, to a point and click, it would be Norco. You know, that, which really does just get some of that sort of uncomfortable vibe. Not the body horror stuff necessarily, but just how it takes you places you don't expect in a point-and-click adventure and really just sells the doomy, gloomy nature of it. And I really like that about it. And yeah, I think that would be a good sort of template to do that sort of point-and-click David Cronenberg adventure for sure. Either point and click or, you know, to take it to Ian's first pitch of like VR, right? Imagine you're doing some type of Videodrome VR experience and you're looking around, you're not sure what to do. You got the gun, you got the gun. And then the solution is to look down at your stomach and then quite literally, you know, reenact sticking that into your uh, your <laughs> stomach uh, <laughs> orifice. Um, I mean, like, to be honest, with like what um, PSVR is promising with like haptic feedback imagine that like literally just getting a feeling i mean you'd have to then have like the best, yeah. body system as well but yeah it's like, but it'd be like amazing to sort of really feel the the feeling of doing something like oh shit something important oh, something. Oh, it's like or even yeah. just your your vr hand goes into your guts and then all of a sudden you feel the pulsing of your heartbeat <laughs> in your hand <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> oh i mean that there is a medium that really really can just sell us further down the line without a doubt yeah so any big hollywood studios that are listening right now the three of us you can hire us as a crew we'll just <laughs> yeah. spit these out all day <laughs> i will be paid in fried chicken say, it's fine <laughs> it's like, if they want if any studios out there want to pay me in uh light beer and fast food i would be more than willing for them to pick oh, my yeah. brain for yeah. you know an hour or a month for as long as they would like <laughs> yeah ale's fine 
Dude, fascinating. <laughs> but uh, Ian, man, this was an absolute pleasure. I was so happy that uh, we could get you on here to chat and you brought us such a fantastic uh, topic for this week. And I think we got more than our uh, money's worth out of that topic. So before we let you go, I would love for you to uh, you know plug some of your socials where people can find all of your uh, fantastic articles for uh, Dread XP. So frankly, it's just the two right now. You know, you can go to Dread XP, you can go to author, um, uh, just dreadxp.com slash author slash imarvin. It's going to bring you all of my articles. I would love for you to become one of my dear readers and see everything I'm putting out there. I'm always just trying to give a platform to indie devs because they're making some cool stuff and more people need to see about it. But aside from that, really, it's just what I'm doing on Twitter. I'm trying to make some bigger moves in 2023 with some uh, YouTube video essays and such. But none of that's come to light yet. So for the time being, find me on Twitter, read my articles, and then argue with me on the Internet about video games. Yeah. And I will add, you know, Ian is really bloody good when it comes to interviewing developers. Oh, one note. Retro Radical on Twitter. That's how you'll find me. (laughs) Yes, that's it. Yeah. I mean, Ian is... Honestly, he is superb at getting some really good answers out of these developers, you know, and really, you know, having the understanding of what they're doing, you know, at that level. I think when you get to certain, you know, when you work for certain sites, you are very much generalizing, I think, in terms of when you are interviewing a developer. I think Ian has such a great understanding of uh the horror space and the people working in that space that he knows the right kind of questions to ask. And I have to say your, your interviews are always really fascinating in that regard. Thank you. I so love yeah, to hear yeah. So, you know, people should always check that out. Yeah, man, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me guys. And uh, yeah, dude, anytime in the future you want to talk games, shine the rad signal in the sky and I'll be there. <laughs> Absolutely. We will be sure to do Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. If you enjoy the show, please rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, if that's still around at the time of this episode being released, at Safe Room Pod for show updates. You can also join our Discord channel, Safe Room Podcast. You can also drop us an email over at saferoompod at gmail.com if you'd like to share your thoughts on a game we're going to cover. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next Monday.